Okay, so we have a holiday called the holiday of Rosh Hashanah in a couple of days. And what I want to do here is to analyze some of the themes that we encounter uh, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that really raise some important questions. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about the fact that we mention the idea of death and one's own demise several times in A, the literature regarding the holidays, and B, regard in the liturgy uh, related to the holidays. And the question is obviously why. We'll try to uh, you know, establish what, what exactly is the problem with that. So first of all, we know, we say, one of the highlights of the prayer on, on both days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is the Unasana Tokev prayer, where we essentially lay it all out. We say, um, now we're going to determine who's going to live and who's going to die and who's going to be born and who's going to pass on. And who's going to die and we list all the grisly kind of deaths <laughs> that you could ever imagine. Now that's true. And obviously, Sword, it, it play, seems you know, yeah, it who, seems a little hyper. Exactly, it seems a little hyperbolic. It seems a little over the top. It seems like we're trying to intimidate the reader and shake him awake. Mm-hmm. And the question is, obviously, you know, why? It seems like overkill. It seems like it's a bit. Uh, it's a bit much. Uh, some other examples. Uh, we we say our sages tell us that on Rosh Hashanah, the butchs of the living and the butchs of their dead are opened in front of God. And lastly, we have the Talmud that says that there's three books that are opened. The books of the Tzaddikim, the righteous, and they get automatically, at the right at the beginning, right in Rosh Hashanah, they get sealed to, a, to, a, uh, to, to life. We have the Rishayim, the wicked, that gets sealed to death. And then we have all the people in the middle. People in the middle, the people, they get, they have, they have their in-betweeners and they get to wait till Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. And if they do tshuva, they get sealed to life. And if they don't, they get sealed to death. That's what it says. Now, by the way, I want to point out that that does not mean life and death as we think of it. This is what we talked about last week. So we talked about this week. Tosis, exactly. It means Olam It means, well, did you have a life worth living or not? So I want to just focus a little bit on the kind of the emotion uh, that is evoked when we think about death. Uh, and a little bit try to understand how uh, it's designed to make our Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience all that more meaningful because the questions are re- it's really a good question you know Rosh Hashanah is the day that we celebrate mm-hmm. some major major events most notably Dave it is Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the birth of humanity that's right that's right the Talmud says that, that the world created on the 25th day of Elul and then sit on the 6th day it's the first day of Tishrei and that is the birthday of mankind. And you would think, I think that's a good question, you would think, why do we celebrate the birthday of mankind mm-hmm. more than we celebrate the birthday of the world at large? Hashem tells us that. Well, that's yeah. That's in the Genesis story. Go ahead, you tell me. There had been no rain because there was no man to give thanks for it. True. Right? So if there was nobody here to see the miracle, it's not as critical to us. Hmm. It doesn't as meaningful to us. So essentially the world was created on the sixth day because the world in its purpose it's only for mankind. And therefore, uh, everything else is laying the ground. Well, we know the last thing that was created is men. And by the way, the Talmud actually asks the question, Talmud essentially asks the question, why is man created last? If man is the, of primary importance, man should, create, should be created first, you would think. You first start with the most important, and then you move on to the less and less uh, important. But the Torah does it the other way. Look at the 13 principles of, of mercy, right? We go from, we go to the more intense... You know, it always goes... So it's, it's, an, it's an ascending it's order. It's an ascending order. It's build up, maybe. Right? Yeah, but I would argue so that they... We could always say that the Go ahead. Was made before us. Booyah! Uh-huh. 
Puya. High five there. What did you say? Because he quoted the Talmud. What? Talmud said, Talmud gives a few answers. One of the Talmud says, say again, Austin. So we can always say that the fly was, was made before we Exactly. Were. It says, if someone, if someone gets haughty, uh-huh. you tell him, yitush. Even a yitush was created before you. Even a fly was created before you. If someone has the, uh, is, you know, has the risk of being arrogant, of having ga'va, you say, oh, you're so important. You know what came before you? The lowly fly that you swat away. One of the answers the Gemara gives. Another answer the Gemara gives is that, well, you make a, you make a party, you want to invite the guests, first you set the table and make sure it's all ready. Yeah, I was going to say, you build a cage before you put an animal in it, right? That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. right. So that's you right. Get Absolutely. All set up. That's what I was thinking. Well, either way, uh, yeah. So, um, either way, mankind is at the center of the worldview of the Jew. What I mean by that is, if we talk about purpose, like you mentioned, or we talk about the grand scheme, the grand picture that God has for us here, the purpose of it all emerged day six. Day six is what it was all for. And you think about it, how bombastic a statement does that sound? Essentially, we're saying there's between 1.25 and 8.7 million species out there now, according to science. That's the lowest and the biggest, the highest estimates that I found. Obviously, we don't really know how many species there are. And science would argue that 99% of all species that have ever lived are already extinct. Yet we say that us, humanity, the least gifted physically of the beasts, we are the purpose of all. Everything is there just to enhance our experience or enhance our, uh, our conflict that is at the core of our life. And, and, and thus we could say... Russia is not only the anniversary of mankind, it's the anniversary, essentially, of the world at its, you know, full fruition. This is what the world is. The world is man in an arena where man has challenges and conflicts. We call that free will. And free will is at the core of whatever it is we say is the purpose of existence. How so? You mentioned that the Ramchal says... Right. Uh, as to just a little, little bit of uh, inside baseball here, there is somewhat of a dispute amongst uh, amongst the commentaries, Jewish sources, as to what is the purpose of existence of the world. And there's basically they fall into two categories. We have the verse in Isaiah that says everything that God created was for His honor, honor of God, glory of God. That's what it's all about. And then we have Maramchal, Maimonides, Lutzato. They talk about everything being here as, 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 as an arena for us to have pleasure. Either God to give us or us to enjoy. Either way, those are the two answers. What I'll show you is that those two are actually linked. They're actually the same thing. How so? Right. So let's break this down here. How does man get pleasure? By doing mitzvahs that earn the pleasure. Okay? How does someone do a mitzvah? Via free will. Okay? Put that aside, right? Our free will is our humanity, and that is what essentially defines us as an entity, as a being, and using that tool, that that enables us to have the pleasure that is the ultimate purpose. On one hand. On the other hand, if we are to say that the purpose of it all is to augment God's kingdom, Right? And how does that work? Well, God was a total ruler of all beforehand. Right? He was a ruler, but he wasn't a king. Why? Because there's no independent verification of God. 
Right? If you create a billion angels and all the angels have no option to say we reject God, well, then there's no independent verification. God had to create man. Man has free will. Thus, man has the ability to reject God. And then when man accepts God and does mitzvahs, right, uses the free will in a positive sense, you fulfill the, fulfill the expansion, augmentation of God's kingdom, of God's glory. Because now there is independent verification. Thus, they're both saying the same thing. They're, saying, they're both saying, uh, and that's why, the big question you could ask here is, Lusato lived in the year 17, born 1707, 1746. He has no rights to argue in the prophet Isaiah, who preceded him by thousands of years. He doesn't have a right in, in, Jewish, uh, in, in Jewish philosophy to debate with Isaiah. What he is showing us is the other side of the coin. Both of them are describing the same process. The process is man using the free will, and that, on one hand, for man is very beneficial because we get the pleasure, and for God's kingdom, gets expanded. And both of those began on Rosh Hashanah. Man was given the opportunity to choose, and thus man had the opportunity, this, this, this purpose of gaining the positive uh, results of the, their choices. That, that's done on Rosh Hashanah. And you know what? Now, on Rosh Hashanah, when man is in existence... Now there's an opportunity for independent verification of God's kingdom. And the first time they have an opportunity to blow. Well, not really, because if you look at the sources, they talk about what happened. Uh, there's a midrash that says that when, a- when Adam was created, all the animals came and started bowing down to, a- to Adam. Because remember, man has some corollary with God. Man is created in the image of God. The animals see man and they say, oh, this is God. Right? And they go bow down to him. And Adam says, no, no, you got to made a mistake. I'm in the image of God, I'm not God. And then he encourages all the animals to go bow down to the Almighty God Himself. Now, obviously, this is a major difference to understand what exactly it means, but clearly this doesn't mean that right away there was a sin. That happened a little bit later. We'll have to, you know, break down that day. It's a, it's a big discussion. It's a very uh, pivotal day in uh, human history, or the world history. Either way, that's what Rosh Hashanah is about. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of mankind. It's the inauguration of God's kingdom. We blow the shofar to establish, uh, to, to, uh, to, um, um, uh, to, what's the word when you do it, to inaugurate a new kingdom, so to speak, because, right, coronation, exactly, of a new kingdom. We have judgment. Why do we have judgment? Why is judgment linked to... Think about this. There's a lot of themes that are bouncing around Rosh Hashanah, that you have judgment. What does judgment have to do with the birth of mankind? And what does judgment have to do with establishing God as a king? The answer is that the birth of mankind enables this idea of God's kingdom, Thus, this is the beginning, the anniversary of God's kingdom as well. And what happens when a new administration comes into town? You know what happens? They judge and they evaluate who is positive and who is a positive effect in the kingdom, right? who is an asset and who is a liability. Thus, it's all linked together to the, same, you know, to the same historical basis of the day. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. And then we start the prayer and we say, all the most depressing things you could possibly think of. Who's going to die by burning? And who's going to die by the mouth of the sword? And who's going to die out of hunger? And who's going to die out of thirst? Is this really a way to kick off a year? Is this really the way to capture the inspiration of the day? What we should have said is, you know what? Who is going to be the one, be the one who's going to re, be reborn? Who is going to be the one to make this year the best year possible? I like that one. That sounds much better. It does. Don't you think? Yeah, I think we, we <laughs> need to go ahead and change up some things. Huh? It's not human nature, though. Human nature <laughs> is motivated by the possible. Well, yeah, but no. I would say that... I, yeah, I agree with you, and we'll see why. Wow. But 
We're not motivated by positive reinforcement. By positive. I don't know. Are we? I think by, I think we. It depends upon who you're talking about. Some people are more inclined to be motivated out of fear, and that's that's one thing. Which I don't know. It's I rather. I think the healthier form of being motivated is through seeking out reward. Well, the question is not what's healthy. The question is what works. Let's see how this works. People because will seek out a reward they can see and touch. You can't see and touch this reward. You have to have faith that it's going to exist. You have no evidence of your reward. That, uh-huh. that thus is faith. You have to live your entire life working to a reward that you won't get until it's too late. But we know, I mean, throughout the Torah, Hashem creates two human beings, gives them everything they could possibly need. One rule, they break Hashem put ten plagues on the Egyptians, splits the sea, drowns Pharaoh's army, forty days later, make it a golden calf. Right. I mean, come on. We, we haven't done well with a lot of the chances we've had. Well, it's also, impor- it's also important for us to not take a simplistic view, especially the Adam story, because that whole thing is, uh, you know, is masked in mystique, and you have to understand what's actually going on. And also the, the, the story of the golden calf. 3,000 people, it's less than a half percent of the nation. And what exactly was their sin? You know, what exactly did they do wrong? You know, this is obviously a big discussion, but I do agree with you, you know. Maybe inspiration doesn't last. And maybe 40 days after Mount Sinai, it's possible for people to do something which is at least akin to idolatry. And that's a very good question. How is that possible? Maybe inspiration is maybe healthier, but it's last. Yeah, they actually had the, the, the proof. We have to oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, we have proof in our everyday life uh, through emotion, through um, seeing a child being born. Yeah, we have we have proofs like this, but we don't have the proofs that they had. They actually saw the Almighty work. Yeah, they don't have uh, right. We don't have the uh, incontrovertible proof of prophecy. But either way, I think it's still a good question that why that on the birthday of mankind do we focus and dwell on his ultimate demise? I think it's a good question. I want to dig into this because I, I just thought Go that ahead. you know let's find your deck because the thing is, a lot of people who are successful. I mean. I, uh, from, a, from a psychological perspective, uh, as I understand uh, study, people who are, there's, there's, like I said, there's two forms, of two, there's two people, t- two types of people in this world who are motivated, uh, different types of motivation. One is through avoidance, motivated through avoidance of fear and dread, and then there's those who are seeking out, uh, who have feel confidence about themselves, they feel like they have control, so therefore they feel they're going to set up rewards or something like that that they're going to want to achieve because they feel like they're worthy of achieving. A person who has a really negative self-concept, they're not going to be thinking about all these rewards and all that. That's why they're so, that's why they're more, uh, they're more based on trying to avoid the fear. It's kind of basically uh, uh, live just out of, it's, it's not, it's, I think it's a, a minimal form of motivation. What, as fear? Uh, avoiding just like you know living your life avoiding so we're going to try to try to see if we can infuse it hmm that's interesting because those seem those seem to both be they seem to be you know uh, they seem to be contradictory right Well, I would say, interestingly, about what we mentioned earlier, 
that why was man created last? One of them is is on one side of the of the coin, and one's on the other side. One of them is like, well, man created last because man is the focus of it all. Prepare everything and then bring man. And then the other one is man created last because man is so insignificant. He's even less significant than the fly. So maybe both of them. Uh, both of them have their, their place. And I would argue, by the way, that Rosh Hashanah, we do mention, it's not like it's all, you know, dread and gloom and doom. It, you know, there is this positivity for, you know, we talk, we talk, you know, blow the chauffeur, and that's, uh, you know, that's heralding, a new beginning. And even in halacha, it's brought down that we have to, we dress in, in, in holiday clothing because we're so assured of our, uh, of our continuity and perpetuity. So, yes, I'm sorry? No, it's, why is it arrogant? It means that we're special, and we know we have assurances that we're going to be successful in our judgment. We know that for sure. No matter what happens, no matter what the Iranians try to do, I guarantee you, the Jewish nation will survive 5776. We will. It's going to happen no matter what. Right? And that's a very good thing. That's a very positive thing. Well, actually, it's 15 years. Better get our act together, huh? So maybe the maybe the value of 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 the flip side of the coin is to spur us to make sure that we have the best kind of experience that we could have individually, the most transformational one that we could have to make ourselves better for the upcoming year. So maybe that's a good point. We cannot just say, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll survive 5776. Yeah, maybe we'll su- The nation itself at large will survive. What about me as the individual? Okay, so let's talk about a little bit what happens when someone thinks about their own death. Because I want to make the argument here tonight that contemplating someone's own death will awaken someone to live a better life. And it's not just a way of freaking someone out. It's a way of inspiring someone to galvanize and mobilize them to become great people, which is our destiny and is our responsibility. And I want to just talk about you know, how we are uh, actually oriented in this world. And I'll explain what I mean here. You mentioned Lusato. We'll go back to Lusato. Lusato talks about the man who's blind. What's the most dangerous thing a blind man could possibly do? Walk into his drive. Drive a car, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because they'll probably end up dead and probably locate some pedestrians or other motorists with them. Mm-hmm. And Lutzato talks about the fact that we have these people that are blind or it's in the darkness and they're walking at the edge of the river. And they can fall right in. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that is how we are described in this world. Blind men walking at the edge of the river. Right? I would say, maybe to update a little bit, a blind man behind the car. Why are we blind? What, what is so crucial that we're missing? What don't we see? What we don't see is the big picture. What we don't see is this expanded view of who we are and what we're going to do in this world. And therefore, because we, the true purpose of the world is masked, we live our life and our priorities are upside down. If we really realized, if we weren't blind, what would we do? How would we behave if we weren't blind? We would live our life with the cognizance and realization that this life is but a corridor to next life. That all we're here for 
is to accomplish spiritual accomplishments, to prepare ourselves for the future presentation. And we're told again and again in Jewish sources, there's so many sources about this. This world, for example, in the in vote, chapters of the fathers, this world is but a corridor, a hallway to next world, which is the grand ballroom. Huh? That's right, Trotfield, that's right, excellent. Yeah. The time of burning. Right? But what but what but how do we live our life? How do we live our life? We live our life and I would say most people and most people most of the time, they have the priorities upside down. They think that this world is the ultimate world, and this is a final destination, this is not a means, this is an end. And therefore, they're blind. They, they totally miss the boat. They don't see what is essentially really so important, so crucial, and, and maybe even so obvious if you think about it. And they live a, a life where, the, you know, where, where everything's upside down. But if they're blind to it, then how can they be punished for it? Because they, they have the ability to open their eyes. And that's why I'll tell you, there's this great, uh, there's this great uh, uh, verse we say, Kiner mitzvah v'torah or. Because a mitzvah is a candle and Torah is light. And the Talmud tells us, it's actually in your point, that we're, we're in the darkness and yet we, and, and we're, there's so many dangers that could happen to us. I would take that and say that's really a corollary to what Lutzato says. We're in the darkness at the edge of a river. So many bad things should happen to us. However, we have the op- we have a flashlight. You're not going to turn the flashlight? Well, then you're negligent. You deserve everything that happens to you. What's the flashlight? That's the Torah. And what's the, you know, and, 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 you know, or a candle is the, uh, is the mitzvahs. Those things open up our eyes. Now, interestingly, there's a, there's a famous song, this Jewish song, that describes a conversation that two people have, two twins have in, in utero. Right? And they're having this discussion, and they're arguing whether or not there's anything else besides for their existence. And one brother tries to tell the other brother, oh, there's this big, big world out there, you know? And the other one says, no, 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 this is all we got. And then one of them is being born. The other guy's like, oh, goodness, my brother died. You'll never see him again. And the opposite is actually true. Because, you know, this is just a corridor to the next world. And by the way, this song, I never found a source for it in Jewish writings, but I think I have the source. What was the word you said you described the, 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 the corridor? Prozdor. Do you guys know, so I just discovered this today, that the Talmud does not, uh, or the Hebrew, Hebrew is called the holy language, Lashon HaKodesh. Why it's called Lashon HaKodesh? You know why it's called Lashon HaKodesh? That's uh, God, the language that Hashem created the universe. That's not, what, uh, that's not what Maimonides says. Why is Hebrew the holy language? Maimonides tells us the reason why it's called the holy language is because there's no names for the reproductive organs. Really? That's what he says. Really? Mm-hmm. I never heard that. That's what he says. That's right. But there's no name for the reproductive that's organs. And that's why when you... Re- when, you <laughs> <laughs> when you study the Talmud and you study items that relate to certain parts of the anatomy, it has these euphemisms. And because there's no Hebrew words for certain anatomical organs. What would you say is the name that the Talmud accords to a birth canal? Prozdar, baby. Same word. How interesting is that? 
maybe what it's telling us is that the authors of the Talmud, they use the same word, prosner, to describe what this world is compared to the next world, and that's also the same little path, very short, seemingly insignificant, you know, although, you know, quite, uh, I guess, you know, re- remarkable and dramatic, but seemingly, it's, on the grand scheme of things, not as, ins- as significant as what the ultimate destination is. Very interesting. I had just a thought to put it on the side. So that means, so it's corridor. The yes, corridor. corridor, corridor, that's right. Yeah. Go and ahead. I have a question, kind of a roundabout. So, if there's no names for the reproductive organs, yes. it would say that those organs are something to be held, uh, I guess, private or something that's to be... It's a certain uh, sensitivity. But, before the sin of Adam and Eve, we were completely exposed, uh, like... Like all yeah, the other beings on earth. Yeah, so that's that's true. Were we meant to be maybe maybe uh, maybe the element of holiness develops when it's possible to be unholy. So maybe post sin, there's opportunity for holiness, just because the opposite effect is is true as well that it does, that 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 uh, contamination and impurity can exist as well. Very interesting. Good point there. Rabbi Taft actually gives a shear on that about Adam not wearing clothing. I said the mm-hmm. midrash is that his body was more like our fingernails. Was covered in vino, right? right? Mm-hmm. And his he had such a pure neshama breathed in directly by Hashem. It shone, it shined at him. He was looking at him as like looking at the sun. You couldn't see anything mm-hmm. but this light. So he didn't need clothing. Mm-hmm. There was no immodesty. You couldn't. It was, you couldn't see past the light. It was only after he sinned and it darkened his neshama. That you require clothing. So, so you're saying so the uh, that's why we have what's called immodesty and modesty rules because of uh, because of that sin. Well, not only that, that sin greatly altered uh, the you know the reality of of, of this world. That changed everything. Yeah. Well, what the Adam uh, eating the apple. Well, what exactly happened? The sin. Let's call it the sin. Uh, the sin. Adam sin. Notorious Adam. sin. <laughs> Well, Burger gives a, a speech about this where he says, you know, humans are horses. Uh, what that means is if somebody would have said, you know, Jonathan, do you have a soul? Would you answer me? Horse. No, you don't. Okay. Uh, David, do you have a soul? I have an Ashoma, yeah. No, you don't. You are an Ashoma. You are a soul. Well, so you can more precisely, you're a fusion so, of so, body and soul. So, so the thing is, is you don't have what you are. You are what you are. You don't have what you are. So your body has because you possess your body. You don't possess your soul. You are your soul. So your body is meant to be like a horse. You don't put pants on a horse. After the sin, you put pants on the horse. It wasn't natural to put pants on the horse. Um, you know that he gives he gives a whole parallel about how we are a, a, a horse or a rental car. You're supposed to use it and treat it well, and when it's time to return it, you go on. And I think that the uh, the soul is supposed to be the rider to the body's horse. Okay, so guys, let's 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 dig a little deeper here. No problem. Comments. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Comments, questions. We're going to take this to another level. So what I'm trying to say here is like this. I'm trying to say is that the core problem of humanity is the fact that we're blind, and we're blind. And what does that create? That creates a misrepresentation of fact. Of as to what is important and what is secondary, right? what is lasting, what's eternal, and what passes, mm-hmm. and uh, 
that is the underpinning of all our mistakes that we make in our lives. And it's a great story with the Chafetz Chaim. I'll say it real quickly because I, I want to finish this uh, in time. There's this really wealthy man came to visit the Chafetz Chaim and he saw his really sparsely furnished house. And he said to him, you know, why, you know, why, why don't you have like a more like nicer couches and better furniture? So he said to him, well, uh, why don't you have, you know, why don't, where's your furniture? I don't see your furniture. He says, well, me, I'm traveling. I have in my house. I have in my permanent uh, uh, domicile. I have my furnishings. Like, oh, me too. I'm here. I'm also traveling in this world. Me too. In, in, my, in the ultimate destination, right? That's where I have my, you know, you know that's where I settle down. And in, in our perspective is that we look at this world as a destination, and therefore all our actions are directed, all our investments, all our time and our efforts and our thoughts and our deeds and our words, all those are invested to betterment of this current existence, this iteration of who we are. And we forget about what, what the ultimate iteration is. Well, we spend so much time in the corridor and not focusing enough on the destination, on the hallway. Now, why do we do this? Interesting. Why do we do this? Think about this. Why? Why are we blind? Who makes us blind? Well, I want, ourselves. But what part of our physiology? A Yetzirah. A Yetzirah does that. Now, I'll, t- I'll give you some proof of this. You say, oh, Rabbi, give me a source. I'll give you sources. The Talmud says that the Yetzirah is compared to the, the yeast in the dough. You guys remember that? Se'or should be The Yetzirah is compared to yeast and the dough. What's the difference between bread and matzah? Right. Only yeast. Now, what changes between matzah, you put in yeast, and now you have bread? What changes? Nutritionally, nothing. The experience is dramatically different, <laughs> right? The allure and the appeal and the expansion, the augmentation, you know, the, uh, the, of, of bread is just so much of matzah is flat, you know, but essentially it's the same thing. Now, if you, food is fuel, if you consider food to be just fuel, it's just a means, it's not an end, well then you, you should, matzah's fine, doesn't matter. Comes along the yeast, what does he tell you? He throws in the yeast, and he takes what ought to be fuel, and he transforms it into something, onto its own. He says, ah, oh, settle down, this is a destination. Right? This, is, this is something that has its own value. It's not just a means to an end. It's not just a means to have, to be, to have strength to do, to do Torah, to have strength to be a good person, you know, to have energy to, uh, to do what's right and to help others around you. No, it's an end unto itself. That, that's what it is. It is causing this uh, uh, diversion of direction, of focus in life. And it makes us blind because now we suddenly stop and we see everything. There's yeast everywhere. Our whole life, we just, we just, we have the yeast everywhere because everything, everything we see, our house, our car, our, everything, right? Our physique, right? that's what we focus on. And how much of our day do we spend thinking about what it really matters? And what really matters is to take, right, right, to take everything in this world and use it only as matzah, as fuel, and really focus on the next world. And by the way, I'll tell you, matzah is a mitzvah. Matzah is a mitzvah. What does that tell us? To tell us when you utilize this world, when you utilize this world as fuel, even this world becomes a mitzvah. So we can have it all. We can have this world, we can have next world, so long as we realize that it's matzah. Think about, think about how different it is. What the Torah is telling us is that it's not we have to disavow ourselves from, from, from earth-like pleasures. No. We can enjoy them. Just realize that it's matzah. 
realize that it's fuel. And matzah is a mitzvah. So matzah is even very good. It's delicious. And it's a mitzvah. Provided that you realize that it's not a destination, it's a, you know, it's, it's a tool that you use. It's fuel to help spur you to actually do... The means is the means exactly. So I'll tell you uh-huh. that what if someone says, you know what, I really like, I don't know, playing cards or going to the baseball game. But I, that's not an end unto itself. That's something to make me have the peace of mind to be able to do what's right in life. Well, that maybe that's a mitzvah. If it's not a destination, it's matzah. Matzah is a mitzvah. How radical an idea is that? But comes on Nate Sahara. Comes on Nate Sahara. And Yitzhara tells us, no, 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 no. Let's drop in all of the yeast, expand it, settle down. This is here. This is what we're here for. How do we battle the Yitzhara? I'll quote you guys the Talmud. Talmud, from, Talmud in Brachos 5a. It gives us four ways to fight the Yitzhara. Number one, it says you engage with him, or you, you battle, you spar the Yitzhara Tov against the Yitzhara. What that means, it's a good question. If you have time, maybe we'll come back to it. Study Torah. If that, if that doesn't work, study Torah. If that doesn't work, read the, read the Kriyashma. If those three don't work, remind him of the day of death. The best antidote, the best weaponry that we have against the Yetzirah is remembering the day of death. Because that's when he departs. He's done. Ooh, so how does that work? But either way, what we do see is that the best way to mitigate and attenuate and lessen the impact that the Yetzirah has on our perspective, if we want to minimize it, what do you got to do? What's the best artillery you have? Remember the day of death. Perhaps. We'll get this a little more here. Is that here. why, like, people, when they undergo, like, near-death experiences, that they sometimes, their whole life afterwards is, like, totally altered? Well, not only they, that, they you don't have to, positive, you don't, I mean. apparently you don't have to do a near-death experience. You have to even remind yourself of the day of death. you got to think about the day of death. That thought, that experiment, mm-hmm. while it may be very uncomfortable, and we'll talk about why it's uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable? Why would think about your own death being uncomfortable? Everyone's going to die, right? Is anyone here thinking that Is anyone here? I'm looking at the room here. Is there anyone here who thinks they'll live forever? Anyone? Raise your hand. Will you live forever? No. Whoa. So what, what's someone terrified about death? We're all going to die. What's the problem? Well, what's the old expression? I think it's from a Bob Dylan song. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. It's a natural human fear. But why? We're corporeal beings. This is the existence we know. We don't know what's Fear of the unknown? That's what I said. But I'll tell you guys like this. My theory... Perhaps, per, okay. okay let, 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 let's let's bring this a step back. We'll get to why we're scared of dying in a second. Why are we uncomfortable thinking about death? And it, it should be uncomfortable if you actually think about your own death and you imagine, imagine your body in a box, lowered into the ground. Like you think about that, it's very uncomfortable, very unsettling. You're not dying. No, no, we're all hopefully gonna live really, really long. But that thought is very, very unsettling. It is. I would say perhaps it's unsettling because that essentially means that our Yetzirah is done. Right? The fantasy is over. And we like the fantasy. We feel connected to the Yetzirah. We like our life here. We like this materialism. We love the yeast. Give me some more yeast. So the greatest, the greatest m- malicious act of the Yetzirah was not just to give us all that yeast, but to make us convinced that it's we who want the yeast. I love the yeast. And therefore, the, I thought of death and that the yeast all goes away. And you don't bring any yeast with you? That thought is so disheartening, so distressing for us. 
because it is Baliyatzerah, and that's something we don't want to do necessarily. Now let's talk about why we steer to death. So we said why we steer even thinking of death. <laughs> why we steer? So some people say it's might be the fear of the unknown, a fear of the unknown. I'll tell you why. It's not unknown. I'll tell you exactly what happens after you die. Right? They'll probably sign a death certificate, and they'll clean you up really nice. They wrap you in the, sh- in the you know the shrouds. They put you in a box. They dig a big hole. Put you in cover. Well, what's the problem? What's the unknown? What's what's what? Do, does anyone not know that? You're scared about your neshama. Suddenly, we're scared about our neshama. How do we not scared about our neshama right now? You really think we're scared of the death because of our neshama? I don't think so. If we're so worried about the neshama, let's worry about it now. The neshama's your neshama's liberated by death. The best experience your neshama can have is death, huh? I don't know, so but it's liberating. I'll tell you a proof. Because the Midrash says in Pekude that every second your neshama wants to leave your body. Do you know that? Every single solitary second. And what keeps it in? Hashem forces it in. Your neshama wants to die. It would love that. Nothing more. So if you worry about the soul, how can you worry about the soul? The soul's happy. The soul's finally liberated. So why are we scared of death? Judgment. Huh? Judgment. We scared judgment? Yeah, but come on, is that really why everyone, even people that are not scared of retribution, are worried about death? Why are we scared of death? When, when people are afraid, afraid of dying, they turn to religion because they feel like they have to make up for lost time. They feel like they're, they have to connect because they're afraid that what's going to happen. I mean, I have to make some sort of impact. It's true. I mean, I was, a, I was a combat officer in the army, and, and the old adage is true: there are no atheists in Boston. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let me let me tell you guys what my thought. But you guys tell me if you agree with me. I think it's a little bit of a deep idea. Uh-huh. I think that the reason why most people are scared of dying is not because of fear of the unknown. We know exactly what will happen. We don't worry about neshama because we never worry about neshama. It's so far from our worldview. It really is for most of us. Why are we terrified of death? The reason is because for most of us, the bulk, the majority of our actions, our thoughts, our effort, is in this world as a destination and therefore what happens when someone dies everything crumbles their whole life everything that they invested their life in, in now is obviously rejected it's invalidated and to think about your whole life being invalidated everything that you invested time and work towards materially is gone now it's all crumbles like a house of cards that is very disheartening. That's distressing. You don't agree? Go ahead. Oh, so what's the Sadiqimi? The righteous people. Go ahead. Well, doing mitzvahs is an act of righteousness. Absolutely. Of course. And if someone, and if someone, of course, and that's why I would argue that if someone is a tzaddik, is a righteous person who does a lot of mitzvahs, to them, the day of death is a validation. I'll bring you proof. Once again, I got proof about this all. What does it say about a tzaddik who dies? I'll bring you some examples. It says, huh? Well, not only that, it says, it says, don't don't believe in yourself for the day you die. But that's the Mishnah in the chapter of the fathers. Don't believe and don't have confidence in yourself till the day you die. 
Don't believe yourself. Don't have. Don't feel secure in yourself the day you die. What happens the day you die? What do you feel? You feel secure in yourself. You know if you're righteous and now you're dying, you have a life well lived. It's a validation. Step further. The Talmud tells us in Sota, the same Talmud that talks about ner mitzvah and Torah, or ner, that a mitzvah is a, is a candle and Torah is this overwhelming light. It says that, it just happens, if someone is walking in the dark and they could trip over rocks and they could be eaten by wild beasts and they could have uh, um, um, thieves coming at them, right? Every, all the bad things are happening. They, they have a candle, well now they're saved from one thing. They have, a, they have the light, they're saved from another thing. And then the end is that if someone reaches a crossroads, they're safe from everything. A crossroads are safe from everything. That's the pinnacle. What's this crossroads? What's Prashas Drachim? That is this end point. That is this ultimate... Transition. Well, so it gives a few examples. Right? But what is this point that we can have such total peace and harmony and security that we know nothing bad will happen to us? It says, A Talmud Chacham, a righteous person, and the day of death. The day of death is the one day for the righteous that is the best day for them. It's as ironically as it sounds. That is the day where their life gets validated. Where now they know they have nothing else to worry about. Now they, their life has been fulfilled. So, let's recap, I'll recap this thought. I agree with you. But I say most people, right, for them, if if oh, not, not saying most people, if people invested, forget about most people, the people that fo- make this world a destination, people that are totally overwhelmed by the Yitzhak, what's the most terrifying thing? Death. Why? Because in everything you're investing, everything that you're working towards is, is all gone. You can't bring anything with you. Well, yes. I mean, I would argue the family is something spiritual. That's very interesting. This, the family is connected to the soul. The family gives you a legacy. The family gives you a, a continuity. The family. The family. A family that you, you invest children, in. Yeah. That's equivalent to a mitzvah, maybe. That's something that that, that, that accompanies you forever. Our, is our soul like passed down through uh, through within families? Well, yeah. I mean, we find sources that talk about someone's kin being accrued towards their behavior, to, to, toward, toward, towards their, uh, you know, towards, towards their merit. And it's actually. Yeah, like the descendants of people who converted from Judaism to the well, not that someone who converts out of faith becomes a non-Jew, right? Yeah. You should be baptized a hundred times. You might get wet, but you'll stay Jewish. And I, I love them, and I see them, they make me happy, it's one of my peaceful things, I enjoy it. And I don't have any children. And my wife and I were talking one day, and we're like, what happened to when we're gone? We have these, this collection, these beautiful things, and it'll end up sold for scrap somewhere, or somebody will say, what's this junk, and throw it away, and not have any idea of the value. Uh, or even worse, nobody will appreciate the fact that we have so much invested in it emotionally, not just financially, but emotionally. Each piece has a story behind it or something. And you think so much about, you know, something as simple as a little porcelain collection. And, you know, but you're right. You know, I, I, I worry what will happen to the things that I have. Uh, well, but I'm saying if you expand that a little more, like someone who builds a business. 
puts 20 hours in the business, 20 hours a day, right? Really slaves on it, invests everything. What happens when they die? So if they have kids, I think that, that does lend a certain perpetuity to their life. What if they don't? Everything's gone. Every, everything's gone. All they have is their mitzvahs. And if hopefully they did as many mitzvahs well, as they, they can. That would be that would be the most beneficial thing that they could possibly do. There's a story about a very, very rich man, I don't remember who he was. I think he was one of the founders of Sears and Robots. And he spent basically the last forty years of his life giving away his fortune. Israel, Yeshiva is whatever. He had a rabbi that he used to learn with in Israel. And there was a long story behind it, it doesn't really matter, but he was there for a Shabbos and he needed a pair of socks and he had his pair of socks. When the man died, he was 80 years, 90 years old, he put in his will, you know, he was, he was from, he wanted a Jewish burial, but he said, I'd like to be buried in these socks. Mm-hmm. Meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And rabbis got together and they debated about it and they said, you know what, I'm sorry. They told the family, I'm sorry, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. The shroud is it, there's no exceptions, that's it. Mm-hmm. The next, after the funeral, they went to the reading of the will. Mm-hmm. And he had a note to his children at the bottom of the well. You get this, you get this, you get this. And he said, look, kids, between the four of you and mm-hmm. the money I've left, you'll be four of the richest people in the United States. Mm-hmm. And remember, you can't take it with you. Not even a lousy pair of socks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have that same story? <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. What? <laughs> okay, to steal my notes. <laughs> Let me know the story here. So there was a, I don't know if, where this story comes from either, but I heard the story about this guy who was incarcerated. So he, he, was can't inca- be, he can't be buried in your famous, like, uh, Mercedes Benz? No, there was this one lady, I think, who tried to do it, one who buried a Ferrari. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Talk about but so there was this guy who... Uh, I'd have a metal detector in the shovel. <laughs> So you, you can't have a, like a really nice, pretty casket. You could, but it doesn't mean anything. Your body, your body is enjoy. Your body, your body eventually will, will, you know, disintegrate into into nothing. Not done yet. We haven't, we haven't even barely started. After after the class is all complete, please do join us for please do join us for Marim and Malaf. We start in just a few minutes. I want to draw your attention for all of you who have not yet seen the uh, really high holidays, high holidays learners experience flyer. There's still some in the back. We'd love to see you there. Please let your friends know, your coworkers say, hey, I'm looking for a place for high holidays. I need something that's very beginner oriented. Uh, you know, uh, nothing with a heavy Hebrew. Uh, I want to be inspired. This is the thing. This is the thing. Not, uh, not too heavy on the Hebrew, but very, very heavy on the inspiration. Also, there are uh, schedules that have all the high holiday times uh, all the way through the end of the coat on the table in front over there, over back. And uh, we'd love to see whatever you'd like to join us. Actually, you know, I've heard so, about, I've read about these, this a story where people want to be buried. There's this new form of burial where, you know, I'm, I'm going to sit, where I'm going to. No, I should just say quickly because okay. I want to finish. All right, that. so we we are buried in like almost like a, a tree, like a, pe- a pod. We become like a seed. Yeah, and, but uh, we but we really don't. We create life. It's just it's just the, those death. kind of thoughts are man clinging onto some shred of eternity, and that's a good thing. That's what we say with a mitzvah. You're able to do that. So I heard a story about a guy who was uh, in forced labor, and they told him that what you need to do is they gave him like a, like one side of a hand mill. So like a, like a hand-operated uh, grain mill to grind the wheat. They told me the other side of the wall, they're actually putting the wheat, you're grinding it, and you're fine. So 25 years, he would spend just all day, all night grinding the wheat. And then when he was finished, he 
said, okay, I want to look at the other side of the wall just to see what I was doing. They broke the other side of the wall and they saw that it was just, it was just, it was just a piece of metal spinning in the air. And that devastation just destroyed him. And if you think about that, like, if you realize just the thought of your life being an exercise in futility, just nothing, you gain nothing out of it, that's devastating. That's why we're scared of death, I think. Because we realize that all the effort that we invest into this world that we think is a destination, really, really it's nothing. When we die, we take, we take nothing of that with that. And that's why I think people have death, deathbed regrets, you know. Why do you have a regret? Because there's a, there's a difference between the way you live and the way you really ought to live once all the fantasy is wiped away. Because on our death, we realize, right, the mask is removed, the blinds are opened, right? The blindness is, 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 is of the eight is gone. And now we see clearly. And that's why we have the regrets. And I want to say that Rosh Hashanah is, I'm trying to cut to the end here, Rosh Hashanah is the day that we really need more than anything else, we need to reinvent ourselves. We need to re- it's the birthday of mankind. And we have to fundamentally change who we are. We want to redirect our priorities in life. Right? However, to do that, you have to get rid of the Yetzirah. You have to remove this blindness. And therefore, the, the, the tools that our sages give us are going to help us do that. We say, think about your death. And it's not comfortable. It's not fun. It's not fun. And we have to, we have an internal uh, revulsion uh, to, to this kind of exercise. But it's the most valuable because this enables us to really see life more clearly. And if we want to ask ourselves the question, what are we living for? We live for this world, the next world. Uh, that's what I brought up at the beginning of the. Uh, that's right, and that that's that's one of the core themes of Rosh Hashanah. Are we living for the next world, or are we living for our neshama? You know, the things we do. Both, but those, those two overlap. Those two overlap. So you can't live, you know, ignoring this world. You have to embrace what you have in this world to help you have a better next world. But you Absolutely. have to follow the example of Abraham and use this world to sanctify Hashem. So I just want to tell you guys there's some other cool stuff there that like there's the Talmud that talks about there's nine hundred and three different kinds of death. Nine hundred and three. Talmud and Brachos. Oh yeah, so it's uh, uh, nine hundred and three ways. Uh, and that kinda of shows like this uh, tremendous spectrum of life. I don't know. You tell me. No, there's got to be a. There's got to be something behind that. But that shows us that not all lives are equal. Not all deaths are the same. And the tzaddikim, for them, it's maybe the best day of their lives. And for the for the sinners, it's the worst day of their lives because everything suddenly crumbles. All the illusions get shattered. All the fantasies are gone. So our hope is that on Rosh Hashanah, we use this as a tool to really make our life more meaningful. Because when we do that, we're temporarily, we're given temporarily, temp- temporary sobriety. And uh, by doing that, hopefully we can have the best year possible. Thank you for listening. And I know it's an uncomfortable subject, because it is. And that's why it works. Because it's taking us out of our normal elements uh, and exposing us to this world that uh, is true, but is uncomfortable for us because we kind of like it the way it is. As insane as that may be. Have a... And Shana Tova, Umetuka, and everyone let's have the most beautiful Roshana we've ever had. Awesome. Translate the second bracha of the Amidah is bless you, Lord our God, who makes zombies. Uchayem 18? No. Because it's not zombies. It's not zombies.
we look at the uh, at the Talmud uh, that talks about what it means to be reinvented, to be reborn. It's not zombies. Actually, well, because because into the earlier point, right? You you started with you can't you can't fulfill what Isaiah was talking about, bringing the glory to God. If you're an automaton, you have to oh, yeah. bring free will into That's it. That's right. 